This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 261. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, joined today by co-host Jacob Paulson. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me, Riley. Appreciate it. <laughs> thanks for having you, yeah. You practically have to beg to get on the show now, huh? <laughs> no. <laughs> but but I'm grateful to be here. And Jacob is the man who spent all weekend with me freezing and shooting and mostly still having fun, but also mostly cold. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair summary. But it was a good time. We had some great people and it was it was super fun. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, we just got done a couple days ago uh, running our first ever Guardian Pistol Instructor course, which was uh, was awesome. We we certified for for the first time ever uh, instructors that already are in our instructor network to teach our recently launched Guardian Pistol curriculum, and they all did fantastic. We had a great time. In fact, Sean, who is commenting here, is one of those that uh, was there and uh, is now a certified Guardian Pistol instructor. So congrats to Sean. Uh, Good job. Good work, buddy. And uh, we're proud to have you added to this uh, elite team. And it is indeed, because currently there are five people nationwide that can teach this curriculum. So... Yeah, um, we are here today with this news episode of the podcast. We've got some great stories coming up. We've got some legislative updates, especially a lot of updates out of California and a lot, lot, of, lot of activity in California. And that's because California, big state like it is, somewhat anti-gun state like it is, has a late-in-the-year legislative sessions unlike a lot of other states. So they got a lot going on there, right there. Gar- Governor Brown signed some, some bills into law and also vetoed some others. There's both some good news and some bad news coming out of California uh, as far as those bills that uh, Jerry Brown has uh, signed or vetoed. There's also some legislative, legislative updates out of New Hampshire. We've got a bunch of justified save stories I think you'll, you're going to enjoy, as well as some other news. And some new product releases from a couple of major gun manufacturers. We'll, we'll touch on each of those as well. So, But today's episode is first brought to you by... Guardian Nation and its brand new member benefit that we've been teasing and I've been, oh, Jacob has been so hard for me to clamp down on my tongue and keep from slipping it. And I'm super excited, bud. Because You're of, funny. You've uh, been like teasing this for like four weeks or something. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's been hard to keep a secret, man. It's like we're so stoked to get this lined up. And as of officially October 1st, we can now speak. And... Uh, we are pleased to announce a new discount, a new benefit for all Guardian Nation members. And so before I tell you exactly what it is, why are you not a Guardian Nation member already if if, if you're not? Like you should be because now you're going to miss out on another really awesome thing. And that is a 5% discount off all ammo sold at ammosupplywarehouse.com. Now, I know some of you listening are like 5% more big whoop. Well, here's the thing. Ammo Supply Warehouse, first of all, specializes in bulk orders. Okay, so 5% off a bulk order can add up to be quite a lot. Second of all, in this day and age, right now, in the so-called Trump slump that we're in, which has resulted in lower demand for guns and ammo, and lower than, well, in the last 10 years at least, uh, uh, 
ammo prices, 5% is asking a lot. All right, so it was a big ask for us to find a major supplier like Ammo Supply Warehouse and say, hey, can you give 5% off to all of our Guardian Nation members? And not only that, but Ammo Supply Warehouse really stepped up to the plate. They're amazing. They offer incredible customer service. They're good dudes. Uh, big, big, big time pro Second Amendment. You'd expect that, of course, but they really, truly are. They're, they're, they're not just a business. They're not just people that happen to sell ammo. They're shooters. Uh, they're trained. They, 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 they love training. They love, you know, they, these are our people. And uh, they are reciprocating in kind by offering all Guardian Nation members 5% off all sales. And one of the best deals you can do is to go on there and for 9mm ammo and 223 ammo, if you order 2,000 rounds at a time, not only will you get free shipping, but you'll get that 5% off discount. I'll tell you, 9mm of you can get for about 17-ish cents per round for high-quality brass-cased Fiocchi ammunition. And we just shot it all weekend, and it was freaking awesome. So, yeah, uh, huge, huge announcement. If you if you are a Guardian Nation member, and a quick, easy way to find that discount code is to log into the members area at concealedcarry.com forward slash. You can just go to, I, I create a short link, Jacob. Concealedcarry.com forward slash member discounts. And if you're logged in, then you'll see all that right there, plus the USCCA discount as well. All right. Jacob, what else you got to add about that, man? Because I'm, I'm so stoked. I could just like talk and talk and talk. It's your turn. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd be in trouble for saying it out loud, but in some cases, there's ammo out there that members, when you go buy and you apply your 5% discount, <laughs> Ammo Supply Warehouse will lose money. They will actually go negative on, on certain deals there. That's how small the, the, the margins are in ammo right now. So, yeah, I mean, you're all, it's all, all, Ammo Supply Warehouse is already one of the best suppliers out there at the lowest prices. To get an extra 5% is a big deal. But I will just say that this does bring up another just kind of little tip, and that is that you should always buy your ammo in bulk uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, obviously, it's cheaper when you buy in bulk. Two, you never have an issue where you're like, oh, crap, I was going to go to the range this weekend, but I don't have any ammo. And so that keeps you from going. And three, you don't also ever run into a situation where you you have a bad month financially and you're like, I can't train this month because I can't afford ammo. If you buy in advance and you buy in bulk, then then you're just more likely to get out and shoot it and, and spend less per shot fired. Buy now, be poor later, and still shoot. I like that model, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, awesome stuff. And uh, as always, we are constantly working to make Guardian Nation better and better and better. So uh, this is just another one of the things in the journey. And uh, this is this is one we're super excited about. We're, we're pleased to have this relationship with AmmoSupplyWarehouse.com and uh, look forward to doing business with them for many, many years to come. And uh, we appreciate And even if you're not a Guardian Nation member and if you're not interested in joining the nation, which you should be, but, you know, we totally understand it. And and some of you maybe just can't afford it right now, and that's okay. But, uh, you know, know, in all honesty, I'd rather you afford ammunition and training than afford Guardian Nation, although Guardian Nation is a great way to to get some of that. But if you got to choose between ammo and training and Guardian Nation, well, still go to AmmoSupplyWarehouse.com and still give them your support. I am from it's good stuff and they're very very nicely priced with awesome customer service one thing i appreciated jacob is when our box of ammo showed up was that it was not it was discreet it was nondescript it was it said a box of a box of awesome from asw so you don't even know what that is and the uh return shipping address was discreet and then they put a bunch of like heart 
and dinosaur <laughs> stickers all over it. So it looked all kind of childish and and whatnot. Like it, you just would not have guessed looking at this sitting on on the step that this was ammo. <laughs> so yeah, I, it I loved it. Me of when I was in Brazil, that's what we had to do. When my parents would ship me stuff when I was in Brazil, they had to put stickers all over it so that the <laughs> Brazilians wouldn't open it and confiscate things. Yeah. All right, we have we do have another uh, uh, a couple things we want to mention as, as sponsors of today's episode. Uh, first of all, the North American Rescue Individual Police Officer uh, Kit or IPOC I P O K uh, newly added to our store. We just wanted you to be aware, and it's a really great compact personal, basically it's an IFAC uh, of sorts. So uh, individual first aid kit. It comes with a cat tourniquet. Comes with a bunch of other really great stuff in that kit that that you should have. All right, for uh, personal uh, defense in terms of defending your health uh, after the fact, in the aftermath. If you ended up getting shot or someone else got shot or cut or stabbed or whatever, there is a tool uh, in this kit, in this IPOC kit, to uh, help deal with those wounds, at least in the interim, while you wait for more qualified and better skilled uh, help to arrive. So you can check that out by going to concealedcarry.com forward slash IPOC, I-P-O-K. And then also, Jacob and I are sporting these new awesome Speak Softly and Carry a Big Stick t-shirts. We are super stoked. This is a brand new product as well. We just launched, and uh, these are now available for sale in our store. Awesome shirts. Jacob is sporting it as well. And what, is it, what does it come with there, Jacob? It's got... Uh, the logo on the front, which is Speak Softly and Carry a Big Stick. It's got an American flag and AR-15. And yep. then and then it's got uh, an American flag on the right shoulder. Yeah, looks really cool. And then we've got the ConcealedCarry.com logo on the left shoulder. And so tell us, Speak Softly and Carry a Big Stick. Where, where, where does that come from? So this was, this was first heard in America by U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt. So Teddy Roosevelt, right? And he basically described this as his as his foreign policy. He, he, he said, you know, essentially his style of foreign policy was the exercise of intelligent forethought and of decisive action sufficiently far in advance of any likely crisis. So I think we can all identify with that really well. He, when he first mentioned it, he said it was a West African proverb. So I don't know what the real uh, genesis is. He, he didn't take credit for it. Uh, but the idea that, you know, we can, we can go be warrior poets, as John Lovell would say, but we can carry a big stick, meaning that we're prepared for violence, uh, if it if it happens, yeah, I think this is really timely, considering that last week when Matthew and I did that episode uh, breaking down that shooting in, over that uh, mattress in the dumpster in Abilene, Texas, and I was just thinking how this 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 one concept alone could have stopped that from happening, as far as like speak softly, right? You know, if the, mm-hmm. if those guys had tried to avoid that argument. And in and instead had chosen to be humble and just try to work it out like gentlemen, um, then that probably wouldn't have happened in the first place. But in the event that neighbor or whatever was still intent on harming the other dude, then well, make sure you're carrying a big stick to defend yourself with. Indeed. <laughs> so, all right, guys, that's enough about all that stuff. I know, uh, but uh, we're just super excited about all the cool things that are happening with Guardian Nation, ammo supply, uh, warehouse.com, uh, these new t-shirts, everything. I didn't mention where to get the t-shirt, by the way. So concealedcarry.com forward slash big stick. Go buy one now. They're really great, great, aggressively priced. Uh, we got them as low as we could. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're just, we'll have more apparel coming hopefully soon too. 
So other cool stuff. Uh, someone was asking about, you know, well, this isn't very concealed. You know, people are going to know I'm a gun person. That's true. Well, wear this to the range, wear it at home, whatever. Or maybe you just don't care, although it's better I, to be. I have shirts like this, and I, I wear them a lot uh, when I'm like air, on airplanes, you know, yeah. going when I'm hanging out in California on vacation, you know, places where I can't take a gun. Conversation like, pieces. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'll, I'll wear this. Or I'll, I actually make a point. I go out of my way to, to wear stuff like this to my kid's school. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. <laughs> anyway. All right. So, guys, uh, we, we got a bunch of news stories to cover. But we also don't want to forget that we do have a case of the week from attorney Andrew Branca this week. He took a hiatus last week from from producing this, uh, but he's back this week with some really good tips and suggestions, you know, strategies for dealing with police after you've had to use deadly force. And so I think this will be a good one. Take care and listen in on this. Thanks for joining us for the Law of Self-Defense Case of the Week. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for LawofSelfDefense.com. This Case of the Week is provided for educational purposes only. This Case of the Week involves a shooting death in Georgia, one that on the surface has the trappings of self-defense, trappings which the purported defender promptly shredded from the first moment he spoke with responding law enforcement. In other words, this is a classic example of how not to interact with police in the aftermath of a use-of-force event. In our Law of Self-Defense Level 1 core class, we talk at length, almost an hour, about specific strategies for interacting with the police in the aftermath of a use-of-force event. There are, fundamentally, four strategies. First, simply don't interact with the police. Just walk away from the scene. There are, obviously, several problems with this approach. One is that if your use-of-force was legitimate self-defense, you have a moral obligation to have that use-of-force examined for consistency with the law. Another is that if you just walk away, you've profoundly undermined any claim of self-defense you might wish to make in the future. It's conduct inconsistent with a lawful use of force in self-defense. A third problem is that walking away doesn't necessarily mean you won't be identified and held accountable. Cameras and unobserved witnesses are everywhere, including the camera-equipped smartphones that are ubiquitous today. A second approach is to adopt the say-nothing-to-the-police approach that so many advocate. There are some obvious logical flaws in the say-nothing approach, of course. For example, does say-nothing mean you're not going to call 911? Because calling 911 is saying something to the police. And if you're not going to call 911, eventually you're going to walk away from the scene, and then you're actually adopting the the flee-the-scene strategy we just discussed. There are also legal faults in the say-nothing approach, because contrary to common belief, your silence at the scene can be used against you in court as circumstantial evidence of guilt, at least according to the Supreme Court. And at least that silence prior to you either being Mirandized or you unambiguously asserting your right to silence. Now, some individual states do have their own prohibition on the use of such pre-Miranda silence in court. But unless you know whether your state does have such a restriction, you have no idea whether such silence can or cannot be used in court as circumstantial evidence of your guilt. That said, if you're an actual criminal or you're a person who has not thought through in any detail what you might do in interacting with the police, the say-nothing approach may well be your best bet despite its shortcomings.
The third approach is the say little approach to interacting with the police. Here you limit your communications with police to a few very specific pieces of information. The goal here is to not leave evidentiary value on the table in terms of your prospective legal defense. Good guy cases of self-defense don't tend to get into trouble because there's too much evidence in the case. They tend to get into trouble when there's too little evidence in the case and the claim of self-defense begins to look speculative. This approach is what I consider the quote-unquote professional approach for people who have considered their prospective interaction with the police carefully and who are confident about how they will conduct themselves under the stress of having survived a life-threatening attack. This is not, however, the optimal approach for everybody, especially not for people who might slip into the fourth approach we're going to discuss in a moment. This say-little approach is what we cover in the most detail in our Law of Self-Defense Level 1 class. Now, the fourth approach I just mentioned is what I call the blather approach. This is where the defender decides to explain the entirety of the situation to the responding officers in every detail. Details which they will invariably have gotten wrong, simply because the way the human brain captures and stores and recalls information under stress is completely different and much less reliable than our normal experience. This is why police officers involved in a use of force event are typically given 24 or 48 or 72 hours after that event before they're required to make a statement so that their brains that have been flooded with adrenaline and other stress chemicals at the time can settle down to a more normal state of function. Naturally, I never recommend the blather approach. In this case of the week, we see a kind of fifth approach I don't really discuss in class except to tell students don't do this. It's a kind of self-destruct approach that combines the blather approach with consciousness of guilt evidence. In essence, it involves blathering to the officers and having that blather consist of demonstrable lies. In this case, the defendant initially told 911 that he'd shot an intruder in his home. Then he told responding officers that the man he shot was a stranger to him. He also shared many other details, many of which turned out to be incorrect, either intentionally or unintentionally. In fact, the victim of the shooting, who died as a result, was a recent acquaintance of the defendant whom the defendant had invited to come visit him. They'd engaged in a night of heavy drinking, which concluded in the victim having been hit in the head with a popcorn kettle hard enough that the kettle was drenched in the victim's blood. It involved a blood trail showing the victim had dragged himself some 20 feet behind a sofa, and then the victim suffered a single gunshot wound to the face. The defendant, in contrast, had only minor injuries, sufficient perhaps to indicate a possible fight between the two men. The defendant now claims that he woke up with the victim having placed him in a chokehold, unable to breathe and fighting for his life, and then he shot the victim in self-defense. He has no explanation for the popcorn kettle, nor can he remember how he retrieved his gun, a lack of memory he blames on being intoxicated. Folks, voluntary intoxication is not a defense to a wrongful use of force, or getting things wrong. Even if we look at the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant, this is not a great self-defense narrative under any circumstances. And when combined with his initial tale of having shot an intruder, a stranger in his home, a demonstrable lie, it's a self-defense narrative that holds no water whatever. Whatever strategy you choose in terms of interacting with the police is a decision only you can make. But if you combine any of those strategies with lying to the police, you've sunk any prospect you might have had for a viable self-defense claim. You can read more about the facts of this case by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash police.
If you enjoy this content, I invite you to join us for the Law of Self-Defense live show every Wednesday, 2 p.m. Eastern. It's totally free to either participate live or to watch the recording after each show. For more information, point your browser to lawselfdefense.com forward slash show. I also encourage you to visit our Law of Self-Defense Patreon page where we have free Law of Self-Defense blog content and optional higher value paid content for just $4.99 a month. Plus, for patrons, a free copy of our best-selling book, The Law of Self-Defense, or a DVD, your choice. Find all that at lawofselfdefense.com forward slash Patreon. Remember, you carry a gun so you're hard to kill. Know the law so you're hard to convict. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for lawofselfdefense.com. Some great uh, words of advice from Andrew Brinka about how to interact with and what to say or not to say to police after you've had to use a gun or other weapon in self-defense. So uh, I, I kind of feel like, Jacob, that uh, we've been pretty consistent and, and we're very closely aligned with Andrew for much of the length of this, as long as this podcast is run, as far as a lot of, you know, the similar kind of suggestions about how to interact with the police following an event. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that I would add much uh, other than to say that there's the one of the dangers of uh, all the Andrew Branca awesome content that we share and that he shares for free on his site and on YouTube and stuff is that it gives you the sense that you can just that that, that it's overly simple. And and while concepts are simple, there's a lot of detail in there. I, I recently completed his level one class, and you know we just heard what like a five six minute little you know uh, chat from from Andrew about this topic. In his course, it's an hour long. So there is a lot of detail that I think is available that that helps you understand you know these these simple concepts that he shares in a much deeper way that makes it more applicable. So I would encourage you if you enjoy these things from Andrew Branca, like you really need to go take his 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 level one course. Agreed, agreed. And I still need to take that myself. Um, I mean, I've consumed a lot of his content and I and uh, I feel well versed in a lot of things thanks to him. Well, you've read uh, his book too, which would be another like a less expensive approach to to going a little deeper. Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. Well, another great case of the week from Andrew Branca. Uh, we're privileged again to have that relationship with him and, and be able to produce and share these cases of the week each week on the podcast. Uh, hope, uh, hopefully this is as helpful to all of you. <clears throat> um, let's get into some of our first uh, news stories. We've got here a story. This is a, actually kind of a follow-up to a story that we covered uh, last week in the podcast talking about uh, this uh open carry, they were calling it, I think, a walk, a gun, uh, open carry gun walk at Kent State University in Ohio. And uh, so that walk did occur uh, a few days ago. And unfortunately, what happened is there was about 50 individuals that participated that showed up carrying openly handguns, rifles, et cetera, et cetera. And about a hundred or so protesters, so like anti-gun protesters, those that were not supportive of the pro-open carry gun walk, they showed up to counter that, and it quickly turned into uh, rather confrontational. And as I read this story, this story is on Cleveland.com. The title is Four Arrested at Kent State University Open Carry Gun Walk After Tense Standoff Between Gun Activists, Counter-Protesters, and Police. It seems to me that basically these protesters showed up to protest the gun walk and were being 
not very respectful uh and that there was there was you know a bit of a of, of a clash that occurred police showed up uh many of them in riot gear uh and in fact there was an officer apparently that was assaulted during the uh event um and at least four individuals were arrested it's not they didn't the article doesn't state which side you know whether it's the pro gun or the anti gun side was arrested but by all accounts from reading the article jacob it seems like it was the protesters that continually were causing some some problems here uh you know i'm i'm obviously making some assumptions there but that's kind of the way this article reads i'm i'm curious on your take on this yeah, I, I would agree that it reads that at the very least they seem to uh, begin the confrontation. Uh, it seems pretty clear that both sides were mutually um, escalated and, and kind of became a little bit you know, aggressive, at the very least verbally aggressive. Uh, I, I appreciated that um, the university seemed to be proactive in having law enforcement there. Uh, the university police didn't think they'd be able to handle it. So that was probably wise given the outcome. It's really unfortunate, though. I, I mean, I'm just thinking about contextually, right? That you have one group who's trying to say, "Hey, open carry is legal, so we're going to exercise our rights, and we're doing this to to promote the you know the idea that we should be able to conceal carry on campus." And that someone, you know, uh, then you have a group of people come and say, "No, no, no guns on campus," and they're shouting and yelling. And it just seems like the whole thing is so counterproductive to both sides' arguments. Like both bo- both sides, you know, do not help their agenda by coming out and shouting and being aggressive and, and arguably violent. Yeah, I agree. So, anyway, it, that's, you that's know, unfortunate. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, I, I've expressed before my hesitation about, you know, these types of open carry, um, let's just call it open carry activism, I think is, is probably the best phrase for that. A lot of, a lot of folks uh, endorse this and, and practice this. Uh, I know some folks that, you know, once a month, uh, like on the second day of the month or whatever, or something I think to do with the Second Amendment, they will um, carry openly as a sort of a movement and, a- and activism of sorts to, sit, you know, kind of try to promote uh, the Second Amendment. And I think that's awesome in that in that regard. Um, and I think depending on where you live, the community you're in, um, the culture that that many times that probably is fine. And in some communities and in some cultures, I'm sure it's totally cool and not a bad thing at all. But there are probably some places like, you know, where we go out of our way to show up at a school, at a campus, legal or not, um, which is already kind of a controversial thing, right, Uh, on-campus carry. And, you know, in in the political environment that we're in right now with everything going on um, that's anti-gun, essentially, that we should expect that something like this is going to happen, you know, where there's going to be those that that show up to counter us and uh, things can get out of hand. Um, and I'm not sure how productive this type of gun walk was as far as like it just caused a bunch of problems and people could have gotten hurt. And um, I don't, I'm, I'm just uh, I'm just really hesitant about getting on board with this kind of thing. I, yeah, I don't have any issue with, with it itself. I think it's for each individual to decide if they want to participate. What I have an issue with is it's all about the how, right? Anytime you're going to do any sort of protest or walk or activism, it has to be done with great care. And, and, and by you know care, I mean you know, professionalism and uh, you know all about kind of peaceful conversation. And so the, the second you know, anger gets mixed into that, you know, violence, yelling, shouting, screaming, 
you know, you, you've lost the credibility that you brought to the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I haven't seen too much more on this or any video, not a lot of video anyway, that surfaced from this event. Uh, I'll be very sorely disappointed if I find out that those on the pro gun, on the gun rights side, uh, if, the, if there was anybody on that on our side that did anything that was untoward or that was inappropriate or that was unreasonable, uh, whether to, towards the police that were trying to tamp things down or even towards those that showed up to pr- protest them. Um, finally, my final thoughts, uh, we've covered this many times on the podcast, and that is just that open carry from a tactics perspective is just not a good idea. And thus, I am not a fan of practicing it, but I have no problem with those that choose to do so as far as exercising their rights. Let's move on to the NRA ILA reports. California, Governor Brown vetoes two anti-gun bills. That's good news. That's That's the good news of this. Signs legislation to increase minimum age to purchase firearms. That would be some of the bad news. On uh, September 28th, Governor Jerry Brown took action on the. We've been talking about these for weeks. You know, all these different uh, anti, mostly anti-gun bills. Uh, those ended up on his desk. So this week, let's just tell you first of all what he vetoed. Senate Bill 1177 <clears throat> would prohibit a person from making more than one application to purchase and the dealer delivery of any type of firearm within any 30-day period. So this was vetoed, and I, I'm 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 happy to see that because this was one that we definitely spent a little bit of time talking about because this would have limited people from being able to purchase more than once per month uh, firearms, and uh, that was definitely concerning, right? So that one did get vetoed. Assembly Bill 2888 would expand the list of those eligible to file gun violence restraining orders or GVROs, sometimes also called ERPOs, uh, extreme risk protection orders, uh, beyond the currently authorized reporters, which include immediate family and law enforcement. The new list would have expanded it to employers, coworkers, and employees of a secondary or post-secondary school that the person had attended in the last six months. Uh, so this was vetoed and that's also a little bright spot here. Um, yeah, so now obviously we're, we're very cautious about those sorts of things due to, uh, the potential for, um, uh, due process being violated and other things. Right. And then Senate bill two two twenty one would have prohibited the sale of firearms and ammunition at the cow palace this is a very specific one. And that was vetoed. Uh, so bills that were signed into law, Senate bill 1100, would raise the minimum age to purchase a long gun from 18 to 21 years old. So that's concerning, right? As far as now 18, 19, and 20-year-olds in California can't purchase any gun. Um, I, I see this as, I, I see a, a legal challenge coming on this one, Jacob, as far as a violation of Second Amendment rights. I'd love to see a challenge expanded on a more federal basis to the handgun thing, right, as well. But anyway, an Assembly Bill 2103 was also signed into law, which, and this one, I don't remember seeing this. I don't know where this one quite came from. And uh, I don't have a lot of specifics on this bill. Maybe you know. I, I read it. Okay, so this one adds more requirements to uh, the training mandates or mandated to obtaining a concealed carry license. So tell us about that, Jacob. Yeah, and in fact, I think the the NRA does a disservice by describing it that way. What what this law does is it clarifies the training requirements in order to receive a concealed carry permit. To say it adds more requirements, I think, is not accurate. So, okay. 
previously there was a lot more kind of open-ended uh, interpretation to be to be uh, had at the county level in California. So a county sheriff, uh, you know, could, could determine what what training was going to be required to get a permit, uh, what they were going to accept, what they were not going to accept, and that left it pretty wide open and and up to the county, right? And so, for example, we have an instructor in Sacramento. He is certified to teach classes for about seven different counties in that area. I can't remember all the names. You know, Placer County and Yuma County and Sacramento County, whatever. And so X county might require 16 hours and the other county might require eight hours. And this county requires eight hours, but different types of content. And it's just a lot less uniform. So the new law 2103 essentially clarifies a few things. First, it requires now that uh, the course be no less than eight hours, but shall not be required to exceed 16. So I would say in practice, that doesn't really change anything, um, but it does add some specificity that wasn't there before. But it's, it's you know, that's not it's not changing a lot in terms of how the counties were, were executing that. Two, the course shall include instruction on firearm safety, firearm handling, shooting technique, and laws regarding the permissible use of a firearm. I suspect that that was already pretty much in place by all the county requirements. Now the state is saying, no, we, we, you must do that. And the third thing is the course shall include a live fire shooting exercise on a firing range and shall include a demonstration by the applicant of safe handling of shooting proficiency with each firearm that the applicant is applying to be licensed to carry. And again, that was also relatively ubiquitous already and, and already being done by most counties. So there might be a handful of counties that are really going to have to change their training requirements based on this. But I think that mostly the counties were already doing things that would fall within these guidelines. Um, one last thing that I, that I think uh, is important and it says the applicant shall not be required to pay for any training courses prior to the determination of good cause being made pursuant to section 26202. So in California, the state law says that an applicant must show good cause. And what is good cause is left to the county to decide, right? So in LA County, um, they, they could say, well, we think good cause means you carry around a lot of cash and you've been receiving death threats and you have to prove that. That's that's our definition of good cause. While in San Diego County, recently the San Diego sheriff changed his, his tune and said, no, we think good cause is that just that you have a desire to protect you, yourself and your loved ones. So that, that definition of good cause varies from county to county, and it will continue to vary from county to county. But what has changed is that previously you had counties saying, before you can even turn in an application, you have to go take our whatever required training we dictate and then show up here and turn in the application, and then we'll decide if we're going to if we're going to issue a permit. And you know, it was based on our good cause standard, and that was ridiculous because that essentially required people spend a bunch of money and time only to find out that oh, we 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 won't issue you a permit anyway, and so that's now illegal per per these changes. Hmm. There's a couple of little things in there that I'm not going to review because I don't think that they're particularly huge. Uh, but anyway, hopefully that's a bit of a specificity for you. Oh, that's excellent, man. I appreciate the uh, <clears throat> enlightening to the specifics of that particular bill. Um, okay, so the big one, though, I definitely is uh, now limiting all firearm purchases to 21 years and up. So we'll see how that plays out. I, I seriously, uh, I'm sure that whether it's the Second Amendment Foundation or some other organization, I'm sure there are people uh, behind the scenes working right now to begin uh, uh, legislating this. Or not legislating, but uh, uh, what's the word? <laughs> Fighting over this, I guess. <clears throat> All right. Next up, sfgate.com reports gun storage ordinance comes before city council Tuesday. <clears throat> All sorts of things in California these days, it seems like. Uh, basically, what, what this is, is that uh, <clears throat> San Francisco is looking at 
No, no, no. Or, the city not, of Orinda. I got it wrong. Yeah, I know. Orinda. I was going to correct myself. Thank you. <clears throat> Orinda is, uh, I think San Francisco already does. Okay, that's that's what I was going to try to say also. But there are several cities in California, including San Francisco, including Oakland. Um, now, Orinda is another one that is looking at an ordinance to uh, require owners to store their firearms safely a certain way. And uh, that's basically all this is. I don't have much to say about it other than I don't like these kind of ordinances or laws, but just keeping you all apprised as to the ongoings here. Yeah, it says the city council is set to receive a report on Tuesday night, and then if approved, the ordinance would formally be approved at the October 16th city council meeting. Yep. And would it take effect in November? So if you live in that uh, in, the, in that city and you want to do something about this, it sounds like um, you know do, doing some research ahead of time, but probably being there on October sixteenth is your best bet. Yeah, um, and the other <clears throat> meeting tonight that w- that's literally tonight, so October second. Uh, so if you're in the area, if you live in Orinda or whatever, uh, get involved. Uh, contact your city council people. Let them know of your opinions on the matter and. Uh, yeah, there you have it. So I much rather would, as a community, as a firearms industry, police ourselves with this kind of stuff. You know, like we obviously for the entirety of the Concealed Carry podcast have been consistent in, rec- you know, we suggest responsible gun ownership, responsible gun storage. There's ways you can do these things. I know, number one, a lot of people think, well, I got to be able to get to my gun quickly in the middle of the night and stuff. Well, there are ways you can still do that and still be responsible. Uh, I just talked, I think I talked last week even about uh, having some major problems with gun thefts out of vehicles here in Denver, Colorado. Uh, The city police here basically appealing to the public. They They had a big you know, press conference saying we need the public's help in being more responsible about guns being left, you know, not being, we, we, we want to see guns not being left in vehicles uh, where we've had however many hundred of them sold, stolen just this year from vehicles and already we're, we're finding those on the street. We're, 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 you know, confiscating those from criminals where they've been used in a crime. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're definitely big fans of being responsible, but I, I just, hate to see government having to get involved, feeling like they have to get involved and pass laws that sometimes go above and beyond, are too strict, don't understand gun owners, uh, or come with penalties that are just not appropriate or fair uh, for violation. Besides the fact that I think this sort of thing is incredibly difficult to enforce, barring inspections, (laughs) like what they do in New York City, or I guess at the very least is something that, you know, if something happened after the fact, it's just one more thing they can throw at you. And you're already on the hook, right, for yeah. a, a negligent, uh, uh, you know, some sort of discharge of a weapon where somebody got hurt. But anyway, there you and go. It's, I mean, th- you got to think about this in context, right? On one hand, you might say, oh, I don't see that being such a big deal. Would you, would you think it's a big deal uh, when the cops show up to your house every six months to inspect your firearm storage? Yeah. And they go through your stuff? And then they determine that you 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 own so much ammo that you appear to be planning something, and so now they they issue uh, an extreme risk protection order, and now your guns have been seized from you. Like you know, you you got to understand like the implications of this. In New York City, you have to have home inspections in order to get the license that allows you to buy a gun and bring it home to your house, and those inspections are re- are done every year. That's a huge invasion of privacy. Not to mention it's a burden and a waste of tax dollars. So yeah, we got to th- think about all the implications. Yeah. I have never had a government official come to my house, step inside, and want to inspect my house. 
in my own personal house. Now, I guess one exception or one example where this would happen for a lot of folks is if they're buying or building a new home, a, a new construction home, and they have a building inspector that comes to do inspections or whatnot, right? I've never built or or, or done a major renovation to, to my home, so I haven't had to deal with that. But my point is, is, like, can you imagine the violation? Like, what that would feel like, Jacob, to have government officials have to come to your house once a year and inspect your safe and inspect your guns? Oh, man. It's just, and, and I know we might look at this and be like, oh, that'll never happen. Well, it'll never happen until until the next time, right? It's happening right now in New York City. Yeah. Yeah. Washington Times reports New Hampshire rejects gun control after mass shootings. The New Hampshire's Republican-led legislature rejected several gun control measures after the mass shooting on the Las Vegas Strip last fall and the school shooting in Florida in February, choosing instead to expand a law on where firearms can be carried, and which is pretty interesting, right? Um <clears throat> In other words, Democrats in New Hampshire proposed all these, you know, there's bump stock bills, there were uh, 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 laws similar to like what they're doing in California to raise purchase age from 18 to 21 on long rifles and so forth. But uh, the fact is all these things were, were, were killed. And the one thing is, is that they've expanded where guns can be carried, which <clears throat> the specifics on that were, I had it here. Where did it go? Okay, go ahead. Let's see. It removed the prohibition on carrying a loaded rifle, shotgun, muzzleloader, or air rifle in a snowmobile, aircraft, off-road vehicle, or stationary motor vehicle. Yep. Yep. So, uh, I love the quote, by the way, at the very bottom of this article from State Senator Lou D'Alessandro, a Democrat from Manchester. He said this. (laughs) He was disappointed but not surprised. And he said this. We're the live, free, or die state, he said. I think it's very difficult to get anything done here now. Very astute of you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've, I've, you and I have been to New Hampshire, and it is a wonderful place for a lot of you know God fearing, gun owning people. And <laughs> I mean, it's right on the license plate: live free or die. Right. Yep. Well, just because that's the culture, or that might be the the attitude right now, doesn't mean it can't change. Um, so we still got to keep our guards up, right? You know, this is this was a win for the folks of New Hampshire that these things did not get through, did not get passed, um, that in fact things were actually expanded. But we we still got to be on our toes because you know the next fight is 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 coming, and a lot of people are concerned about this midterm election and what I, what it might mean for not only our national makeup uh, politically as far as the as far as Congress and the Senate. But also in many of these state-run uh, elections as well, where there could be swaps in control of houses or senates, uh, that could have you know this. We're, we're approaching the end of the year, and that means come early next year, we're going to be probably seeing a lot more uh, proposals for more gun control in a variety of places throughout throughout our country. So, uh, be on our toes, be on the lookout, be ready, and continue to fight the good fight in this in this regard. Um, I was thinking one other thing too, Jacob, and that was that, uh, because this article brings it up and I meant to make mention of this, but it has been one year, uh, just over a year exactly since the Las Vegas shooting or 58 people were killed. Um, that was a terrible, 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 terrible thing. And of course it changed so much for our industry in short order. As far as if you recall at that time, there was still consideration for laws of expanding gun rights on a federal level. Uh, legalizing suppressors, you know, not not take basically taking them off the NFA, things of that nature. And when that happened, now all of a sudden we were talking about bump stocks. There was no way we're going to be talking about getting suppressors uh, off the NFA list. Um, 
yeah, what 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 a year it has been since that terrible event. Indeed. NRA ILA. It's loading slowly. There we go. Yep. Back to California. I'll let you take the lead on this one. Good, good, sir. All right. So in true Jacob fashion, let me try and sum this up for you. California law, AB 1014, this law already is on the books, and it allows that a family member or law enforcement officer obtain a court order called a gun violence restraining order against another person. So this is kind of that extreme risk protection order thing that we've seen coming around in a lot of states. And this law is already on the books, and it exists. And what is the news here? The news story is that we have some new data, some new information about how that law has been going. Uh, so we can kind of get a sense for, you know, what, what, what's, what's up, what's yeah. going on. Is it working? Is it and, not and, working? And keep in mind, this is the same one we were just talking about a minute ago in that they were looking at expanding who could file Correct. a GVRO, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And AB got- 2888 was vetoed and it would have expanded this from just uh, relatives and law enforcement to be able to request these things. It would have allowed employers, coworkers, teachers, and other school employees uh, to seek a GVRO, right? But it was vetoed. So, so we're kind of back to square one. So a couple of interesting things here. I'm gonna, this, this I'm going to read. It says, uh, evidence regarding the orders in California bears out some of these apprehensions. A recent news report indicates that California law has been used rarely, being invoked less than 200 times since the law was enacted. It's not clear how many of these 200 orders were 21-day orders made without notice, although an analysis of orders in the first year the law was in effect indicates the vast majority of orders were not confirmed or extended by a court following a full hearing. So let me clarify this, then I'll, I'll read this last sentence. So the way that this law works is, you know, law enforcement officer or relative goes before a judge and says, you know, so-and-so needs to have their guns taken away because X, Y, Z. And the judge says, okay, yes, I'm on board or no, I'm not. And if, if it, the answer is yes, I'm on board, then law enforcement immediately goes and seizes those guns and they, the, that person, so-and-so, can't have those guns for 21 days. W- within that 21 days, a court uh, you know, meeting has to be held. You know, Someone has to go back in front of the judge. And hopefully, this is the opportunity for that gun owner to now uh, represent themselves and explain, you know, to, to fight for, to keep their rights. And the judge has an option to either extend this you know, gun violence restriction order past the 21 days for an additional year or not to. That's the option for the judge. Either, nope, we're going to keep this in effect for another 12 months, or, okay, it expires after the 21 days. Those are the two options. Now, going back to quoting, this is what it says. Out of the 86 gun violence restriction orders granted in 2016, only 10 resulted in the court granting a further one-year order. Yeah. 10 out of 86. Now, I'm no mathematician, uh, but I am that, that's easy enough math. 10 divided by 86. 15. That's 11.6%. Of the orders that were issued by a judge were sustained. The other 89-ish percent were deemed not valid enough to actually continue to restrict that person's Second Amendment rights. That's shocking to me, you know, in that what that tells me is out of 86, 75 of them were likely. Now, we can't say this with certainty and we can't guarantee this, but 75 of them at least had the potential of being perhaps wrongly uh, implemented as far as to, to me, the way this, the, the way I read this and the way I think this law works, Jacob is someone. And currently right now it's family members and law enforcement officers can request, can, you know, can file for a gun violence restraining order against a person 
So let's say a family member does so against another family member. That could be as simple as a, a domestic, you know, type dispute. Now, <clears throat> granted, there are legitimate domestic violence issues out there that I'm not. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about. You know, we all know those people that have gone through divorces that have been nasty divorces, and that where where one party or both parties in some cases are doing every little thing they can to be nasty and get at get back at the other person. Right? They're just nasty, nasty divorces, and it would be so easy for that kind of situation for a, a, a well soon to be ex spouse to say my, my husband or my wife is a terrible, terrible person, and I, I'm concerned that they're gonna you know they they own guns and they're gonna to hurt me or hurt someone else. And boom, you know, law enforcement officers have to show up and confiscate those guns. And then within 21 days, they have to have a hearing where the judge is going to hear the whatever. And a lot of times it sounds like to me, the judge is hearing these cases and is going, um, no, that's, uh, that I got a child knocking on my door. (laughs) That, that, uh, that that doesn't meet the standard, and this you know. So as of the twenty one days, those orders are done and over with. Is that kind of am, am I reading yeah, that correctly? Correct, correct. Yeah, eighty nine percent of the time, the judge says, based on all the evidence you know you know presented by everyone, including the the person against who this order was was enacted, and eighty nine percent of the time, it's not justified to continue re- to restrict this person's Second Amendment rights. And we you know once the twenty one days are up, we need to give this person their guns back. Eighty nine percent of the time, that's. That's ridiculous. Now, it'd be really easy for someone to say, yeah, but, you know, in the other 11% of the time, you know, the judge decided that there is a substantial threat. And, and so isn't it worth, you know, restricting gun owners rights for up to 21 days so that we can, you know, 10% of the time, you know, take take guns away from people who really shouldn't have them. You know, that's an interesting argument. And one that I say is a legitimate thing to say out loud. And I think there's more, there's more that still needs to be done in terms of understanding these extreme risk protection orders and how they're applied and the actual numbers that go behind them. Because, because you know, do you remember the report, Riley, that said like 94% of Nick's background check denials were false positives? It's the same kind of thing, you know, where the argument can be made, yeah, but the other 6% of the time or 5% of the time when it, it really, we really shouldn't let that person buy a gun, isn't that a good thing? Yeah, yeah except, that, you know... <laughs> I think yeah. I'm on record as having said basically when it comes to gun control, my my determination of, 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 of being behind something or not is twofold. First, I need to know, will it actually stop violence? And second, is it worth the burden it will place on legal law, you know, abiding gun owners like myself? And in this case, you know, will it actually stop violence? I, I don't know that I, I could say it's past that threshold for me. And two, is it worth the you know burden that it placed on legal gun owners, I, I I certainly don't think that it's past that threshold for me yet either. So more time to be determined if it's good to finally see some data, some reporting on on these on this you know this concept of these yeah. these protection orders. You know, so here's my thing, right? You know, the the, the whole big concern is that uh, the due process is violated, right? Now I know there are those that would look at this and say, well, 21 days is that's that's reasonable. Um, it's not that unreasonable for someone to surrender their firearms for three weeks and have a hearing, and then if it's legitimate or not, they're you know going to either get them back or they're going to continue to you know legitimately have their firearms uh, confiscated from them. Um, I'm not so sure that's the case in my world. I th- I th- I think that's unreasonable. Uh, and here's why: because if this truly is something that's meant to be used rarely, and according to this report, it is in fact used rarely. Is it really 
that difficult then to, instead of having a 21, and most, by, by the way, most states with or considering GVRO or ERPO type laws use about this 21 win, uh, day time frame. And I'm thinking, geez, like what, what if, now this is a, a small possibility, but what if during the 21 days, my home was broken into and I had an ERPO against me for whatever reason, and I was killed because I couldn't defend myself because my guns were taken away. You know what I mean? So to me, if it's truly meant to be used rarely, which apparently according to this data, it is in fact the case, it's fair. I think it's probably pretty rare. Then is it so difficult or so bad to ask that the, that the hearing be mandated that it must take place within three days? Because I guarantee you that could be done. Judges could make special cases to hear these types of cases. These are not complicated things for them to hear. This could be handled in a matter of minutes or perhaps an hour of hearing both sides and then making a determination as to whether to continue to enforce that order or to rescind it. And to me, like to to make sure that we don't have a due process issue, three days sounds a heck of a lot more reasonable than three weeks. Anyway. Yep. All right. <clears throat> NRA ILA also reporting... Violent crime down in 2017. This according to the FBI releasing its annual crime in the United States. Uh, This was just released earlier this week, or actually I guess that would be last week now uh, by the time of this podcast. The report aggregates crime data, including offender and victim information from law enforcement agencies across the country. About 90% of law enforcement agencies participate in this type of report as far as submitting data. So this is for the year of 2017 again, all right? So basically, to summarize, there's a bunch of bunch of different things here, and I'll let Jacob you talk about anything that you, specific that jumped out at you. But basically, what we see is a decrease in violent crime rates, most pretty much across the board, as far as uh, the types of crimes, the lo- a lot of the lo- different locations where those t- uh, crimes were committed. As far as uh, it talks about Chicago having fewer mur- murders in 2017 than 2016, actually pretty. Substantially, 112 fewer murders in 2017 than 2016. I'd say even for a city of Chicago size, that's that's pretty substantial. Atlanta saw a 28% reduction in murders. Baltimore had the highest homicide rate of large U.S. cities, 56 homicides per 100,000 people. Um, but uh, and then also it talks about murders committed with a firearm also declining. So um, yeah, I, it, there you go. That's cool. I think one thing that's important uh, to put some of this in con- context would, would be to note that uh, previously violent crime had gone up the previous two years. So from 2014 to 2015 and from 2015 to 2016, most of these stats saw slight increases. Uh, so so it's good to have a change of direction, right? To say, hey, it's no longer going up. In fact, it's gone down. Uh, but I also think it's it's important to not jump into a dogmatic kind of uh, storyline of look, violent crime has been decreasing for years because um, because it, technically it's been going up slightly the last two years and now we're seeing a slight reduction. So that's a good thing. Yep, agreed. Yep, there you go. That's uh, all all we wanted to share with you. So moving on now to a story on concealedcarry.com, our site, and uh, this is just a, a report of this is kind of old news by this point as far as in this industry things move pretty quickly but uh we probably actually could have talked about this last week but we already had everything put together for our show and we just moved forward as as it was 
It says here, new from Glock, Glock 45, and two Gen 5 MOS pistols. Basically, Glock uh, announced that uh, they have a new model uh, that they will be releasing. In fact, it's already out there. I've seen uh, there's a couple of shops already getting these in, in, in hand, in stock. Uh, a couple of reviews are already coming in from a few folks. Uh, and uh, the Glock 45, you might think it's a 45 caliber, <laughs> but it's not. It's not confusing at all. Of course, if you're not familiar with Glock, Glock for uh, its entirety of, of being in the business of producing handguns has always labeled their different models with a number. And that began with the number 17. And so we are now from model 17, which actually is what I happen to be carrying today. I have a Glock 17 in my holster, all the way up through the Glock 45, which is the latest and greatest release from Glock. It is a 9mm that is um, somewhat of a, it, it's not a perfect copy, but it's kind of like the Glock 19X, but in a uh, civilian model. And it also has some new and different features as well. For instance, the the 19X does not come with a flared magwell like the uh, recently released Gen 5 Glocks do. This Glock 45 is is officially a Generation 5, so it comes with a flared magwell. Um, this one also comes standard with uh, slide serrations on the front of the slide, not just on the rear. Um, it's basically a Gen 5 Glock with a Glock 19 sized slide but with the length of a Glock 17 grip. So hence why we make the comparison to the 19X. So um, yeah, and apparently Glock is also releasing two new MOS configurations for Gen 5. Uh, one is the Glock 17. Uh, so what this means, if you buy the Glock 17 Gen 5 MOS series, it's going to come with all the same Gen 5 features, um, but is going to be MOS configurable, meaning you can readily attach a red dot uh, sight, uh, you know, slide mounted optic to it. And it also comes with a forward, with the forward slide serrations as well. And they also released the same thing in the Glock 19 Gen 5 MOS. So that's a quick summary of uh, these latest new models. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I would say is that we're probably going to see some more news from Glock here soon. Maybe it'll be at SHOT Show, but uh, as you mentioned, they release models in order by number. And so they jumped from the Glock 43 to the Glock 45. So <laughs> we're all kind of assuming as an industry that the Glock 44 is still hush-hush, but it's coming soon, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, I, that was definitely one of the first things I noted. When I saw this, I was like, you know, I saw the news actually somewhere else on some other site or maybe it was on Facebook, new Glock 45 released. And I was like, oh, okay. So I assumed that I was just seeing the story on the Glock 45 and there, there must have been a release for a Glock 44. And I start looking and I'm like, there's no Glock 44. Something's up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway, pretty cool stuff there. All right. We also have some, a new gun announced uh, from Sig Sauer. And uh, this one, as, as reported on AmmoLand.com, Sig Sauer has released the new M400 Tread rifle, as in like tread on me, don't tread on me, uh, which is really cool because they, they do play on that. And uh, a new logo, which kind of looks like an American flag with the Gadsden type snake uh, sort of incorporated into it in a kind of modern take on that on that theme. Uh, this is a new series of AR-15 rifles that is uh, modular, uh, fully configurable, comes with a bunch of uh, new accessories from Sig Sauer. But the, here's the big thing. And I think this is the big news, Jacob, and why I wanted to talk about this is that traditionally Sig Sauer's AR-type platform guns 
are not they they were not entry level, right? Uh, they they were more of a upper tier uh, uh, weapon, and the tread is really going after the lower end of the market. Uh, MSRP starting at nine hundred fifty one dollars, but people are surmising that street price will be closer to eight hundred. And I'll tell you from what I'm seeing, the way these rifles are being specced, eight hundred dollars is a really good price for the way these rifles will come configured. Uh, this is going to be competing directly with Springfield Armory's Saint series of rifles. And I got to say, I mean, if we're just looking at spec to spec comparison, I, I would be more inclined to spend that $800 for a six hour M400 tread as opposed to the Saints. So Springfield's got some heavy hitting competition, I think, now in this uh, segment of the market. Which means we'll see more competition, frankly. Yeah. Like, Awesome. And yep. no doubt Springfield will come back to the table with more awesomeness and other companies will maybe also say, hey, we're missing out on something and we'll have a lot more entry level, uh, you know, carbine options out there. So yeah, all around, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped to see it. It's awesomeness and great stuff. You know, I'm, I'm a guy, by the way, I know a lot of people listening to this podcast are probably like, oh, just build your own. You know, there's plenty of you build your own rifle people out there and I love you to death, but I ain't that dude. Like <laughs> I'm happy to just buy one and be like, sweet. Yeah, I've gone over the specs on these treads, and uh, these are if you if you're if you're not the dude Jacob that wants to build a rifle, this is a this is a pretty good place to get started. I mean, these are well priced below anything from Daniel Defense, and uh, but I'd say is if it, if it's built with any sort of quality at all, uh, it's going to also probably take a little bit of that market from guys like Daniel, Daniel defense as well. So really, really nicely configured, good options. Um, yeah, looks like it could be a winner from SIG. So good stuff. Now we get into a story on lakeexpo.com. This is a story coming out of Dallas County, Missouri. And, uh, the title is manhunt two homeowners killed in gun battle with intruders suspects at large. Yeah, this is not cool to read. I mean, this is just a little bit tragic. This is a relatively short story. I'm just going to read the story. Authorities are looking for burglars who allegedly shot and killed two homeowners in the early morning hours of Sunday and stole their truck. On Sunday, September 30th, Dallas County deputies were dispatched to a home in Tunis, Missouri. Officers found two homeowners deceased outside the residence. In a press release, Dallas County wrote, it appears that during the early morning hours of this same date, the homeowners interrupted an attempted robbery slash invasion. The homeowners engaged in a gun battle with the intruders, resulting in the loss of their lives. Sheriff's Office is looking for the uh, suspects. Uh, they have very little to go off of as of right now, it sounds like. They do, well, other than they did steal the, the uh, homeowner's truck, and uh, that there's a description of what that truck is. But so... Yeah, this is this is bad. This is like, you know, we we'd like to think that we're all prepared, that we've got our guns, that we've got some training. You know, hopefully, we understand the law, thanks to guys like Andrew Branca. And this is the day where everything goes wrong and it goes badly, and you end up dead. Because I think it's important for us to share these stories on occasion because I know that we share so many justified saves that we run the risk of convincing listeners that it always ends well, right? And this is one of those stories that just reminds you. Man, sometimes it does not end well. These homeowners were armed. We don't know a lot of detail, right? We don't know where the gunfight ensued or who took shot first or what. You know. All we know is we got dead homeowners, and they were in a gun battle. So they also had their own guns, yeah. and they lost, and they're, they're, it's over. Yep. So there's some 
there are some details. There, there's not a lot of details here, but there are some details that definitely bring some questions to mind. The first one is that the homeowners were found dead outside the home. So what that leads me to believe is that obviously they, I mean, this happened early in the morning. So on a Sunday morning, how likely it is, is it that you, you know, just came home and you encountered this and thus that's why we found your dead body outside the home. Chances are these people were inside the home when things started. So what this, you know, makes me wonder, we don't know this, but it kind of, to me, makes me think that they, that something may have happened either inside or outside of the home. And that during the course of the homeowners responding to that, they exited the home. And sometimes we, we talk about this often where we share stories where homeowners either chase intruders out of the home and sometimes go outside the home to confront someone that's breaking into a vehicle or, or stealing some other property or whatever. And it makes me wonder, Jacob, if, if they made the wrong decision in this case, you know, they did the thing that we advise against all the time, which was they left the comfort and the safety and security of their home, uh, unnecessarily to pursue after some bad guys and it cost them their lives. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, Easy way to read between the lines and it's very well possibly true and certainly something we've, we've touched on many times. Yes, indeed we have. So there you go. Take from that what you will, but be responsible. Be safe. Use your brain. <laughs> don't, don't go chasing after bad guys when you don't need to. Okay. Next story, WTOC.com. This is our first justified save. Employee pulls out gun, stops attempted robbery in Savannah. I'm going to hand this one off to you, Jacob, and this kind of also illustrates some of what I just talked about. Go ahead. Yeah, for me, this is a great situational awareness story uh, because we have some good surveillance video from this uh, vape shop. And what you have is you have the, the guy who opens the store. He's the employee. He works there. And uh, after he's opened it, very soon after he opens it, two people walk in and they appear to be customers. So while they're walking around or shopping or whatever, our employee is on the phone and he's talking to the actual store owner, probably something like, Hey, I'm here. It's open, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. And while he's on the phone, he kind of has his back turned to the two shoppers and with his back turned, they both put on kind of, I'll call them like, like bandana type looking things over their faces, you know, face masks. And they start to get up really close behind him. I mean, I'm talking like a less a foot, less than a foot separates our good guy on the phone with the bad guy right behind him. And he just happens to kind of, you know, in the course of his walking behind the counter, turn around and see that there's now a man with a mask on, like right in his face. And very quickly, he kind of just shoves, just kind of pushes this dude uh, away from himself, notices that the other uh, robber is armed and he kind of runs away toward the back of the store. And in that, in the course of that, it's not entirely clear to me where or when he retrieves his gun, but it did say that it was in his bag. You know, he had his, he keeps a gun in his bag that he takes with him to the store. So he retrieves this gun from this bag and hold, essentially hold on right there. Hold on right there. This is, this is an interesting detail, Jacob. It says here that he always carries a gun with him for safety. Normally the gun would be in his bag in the back of the store. But he hadn't taken it back there yet. Yeah, it's not clear if he didn't take the gun back to the bag or if the gun was in the bag and he hadn't taken the bag back right. there yet. I found because that really it, interesting. Yeah, because we can't see. It goes off camera when he actually draws the when he retrieves the gun wherever it was and 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 uh, presents it to the bad guys. Uh, but certainly, what's clear is that he was lucky that day, right? That he that he still had it in relative close proximity. It wasn't in the back of the store like it normally would be. 
So he, you know, this is this is where another weird thing happens. So we, so we go from kind of this like situational awareness, like, dude, come on, like pay attention to the whole like, wait, you should have your gun with you all the time thing. So now here's the next interesting lesson. So he gets his gun. He he points at these two dudes, and like any smart you know criminals, they decide it's not worth you know getting the cash or the vape stuff or whatever. And so they run out the door, and he chases them out the door. And they go all the way across the street and he's, I don't know that he's still chasing them, but he's certainly still kind of got the gun pointed at them. And he's, he's now outside the store. Uh, the good guy is, and he's seeing the, the bad guys, the BGs running away. And he says, quote, when they got to the edge of the street, they kind of acted like they were about to turn around. So I just fired two warning shots. So we talk a lot about warning shots and how they're a bad idea. So I don't think we need to harp on it a ton, uh, but I will add, you know, why, why chase them out the door at all? You know, why leave your place of cover, relative security, place that, you know, you, you, you have those advantages going for you and go out the front door after your, your BGs. That I think was the first mistake and shooting warning shots wasn't probably the best plan either. Yep. Now you picked up on a lot of the same things I did. Uh, and the reason I led into that story the way I did is because, you know, this, this is a, another example where this dude went outside of that store after the fact, after they had left. Um, and that, you know, so he, he didn't end up firing warning shots, which is problematic, but the reason he had to do so is because once he followed them out there, they got to the street or the edge of the street or across, I can't remember exactly, but they then acted like they were going to turn back towards him. Now, one of those guys had a gun and they might've turned, they might've considered turning around and shooting at him, feeling like they were now at a greater distance and that they could then do that. Um, so he placed himself in greater risk uh, in a situation where now he felt, for whatever reason, he had to use warning shots, uh, as ill-advised as that would be, but he felt like he had to because he placed himself in a situation where that became the case. Um, so now, interestingly enough, he could have just shot these guys, most likely, right, considering the circumstances, but he did not. He could have perhaps even shot them outside the store, maybe, but he did not. He used warning shots. All right, well, that's cool. Whatever you know, what it's, it's not cool to do warning shots. If, just to be clear, but but the fact is, you know, this is a, a, a an interesting example with lots of lessons to be learned of of a good armed civilian. That you know what the end result is, they stopped what was bad from happening, and um, they lived to see another day. And I'm glad they were able to be armed. I prefer that they would carry that gun on their person. <laughs> <laughs> that that was the one thing I thought was interesting. That well, normally I have a gun, but I put it in this bag in the back of the store. Yet you work in a store where you're concerned about being robbed, and usually robberies occur not in the back of the store, but right there where the money is at. But whatever. Yeah, yeah. The conscious decision was made to bring a gun, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but it was also made to leave it in the back of the store. <laughs> it's like I said, though, it's a, such an interesting story, and there's a lot of really interesting details here, and mostly because the store clerk. Um, gives us, he, he talked obviously to the media quite openly, um, which is interesting, you know, too, considering the stuff that Andrew Brink had just talked about today. Uh, but uh, I'm not saying, that, you know, it was wrong for him to do so, but we get those details because he was able to share those with us. The register, uh, the register citizen, register, register citizen.com. This is a, apparently a news story out of Cocoa, Florida. I don't know, I guess. At least that's where they're reporting this story from. Down in Florida, police say a private security guard fatally shot a man who was trying to rob an arcade. This is, I think, the first arcade story I've seen. I mean, I it's like, arcades still exist? <laughs> yeah, they deal in a lot of cash. Yeah, yeah. That's true. 
so apparently a uh, 55-year-old man was armed and wearing a mask when he arrived at the Blue Diamond Arcade early Monday. Uh, a security officer confronted this man and he told him, don't do this. It says then that gunfire was then exchanged and Carter, the 55-year-old robber, was hit. He ran but collapsed about 80 feet from the building. He was declared dead at the hospital. It does say that the guard had a concealed weapons permit. So it's a little unclear if this guy was a, um, you know, an armed guard that was dressed in security, you know, re- readily identifiable as a, as a security guard, or if he was more, uh, um, you know, plain clothes. Because I, mean, I don't know why a concealed weapons permit would have any relevance if he was an armed guard, but there you go. Well, just because journalists love to know whether or not people have so carry permits. <laughs> You're right. I mean, who knows if it has any relevance uh, or not. Uh, what is nice is this arcade made a decision to take a proactive measure to protect um, their customers, their patrons from the, you know potential threats. And so props to them for having a guard in place. And this guard appears to be able to keep a pretty level head to walk up to a masked man and say, don't do this. Um, and then to win the gunfight. We don't know all the details of the gunfight. Maybe there'll be some some videos that'll come out later. Uh, but he won. Yep. The only the only man that was hit and injured that we know of at this point was the uh, the BG. It does appear that there was some sort of video because it's mentioned that the police have reviewed the video. And after talking to witnesses as well, it says it's clear that the guard was within legal boundaries to shoot Carter, the 55-year-old uh, 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 thief or bar- burglar, robber. So... Anyway, there you go. Another justified save story. And also now, yard sales shopper Pepper Spray's couple now headed to prison. OregonLive.com. Well, this is this is a doozy right here. So it's, I'll, it's pretty pretty simple. Yeah, I'll try to explain this one to you. Twenty five year old woman shows up at a yard sale, and the husband and wife, you know, apparently live at this home and they're putting on this yard sale. They notice that this woman is stuffing clothes. From their, from, you know, their clothes that they're selling at this yard sale, this woman is stuffing clothes, and, you know, stealing them into a bag, and getting ready to take them. And she does this in full view of them, like they're watching her do it, and they tell her to stop. She then turns, douses them, she sprays them with pepper spray, and then chases the husband with a knife. It says that she was only stopped when the couple's adult son retrieved a shotgun from the house and pointed it at her. She was arrested and, of course, charged. Apparently, there's some maybe potential uh, mental health issues here as to why this woman was doing what she was doing, but uh, not exactly your everyday story. This is, I don't, well, the arcade story was kind of a first for me as far as I could recall. I don't remember any arcade cell, you know, uses of self-defense occurring, and this is definitely the first time I remember hearing of a justified save occurring at a yard sale. Yeah. Yeah. She was sentenced to 19 months in prison. So that's uh, that's a serious consequence for her actions. Yeah, for sure. Finally, this is also a doozy of a story. (laughs) I saw this one earlier. It was great. Yeah. uh, Escaped monkey attacks North Carolina man's neighbor. Fortunately, the HVAC repairman was armed. I I love the title even. (laughs) Oh, the clever. Very clever. Yeah. The the first one I saw of this was not so awesome. Uh, So, yeah, this headline is fantastic. CharlotteObserver.com. This is where it's reported from. A snow monkey escaped its backyard cage Friday and attacked a neighbor before an HVAC repairman shot and killed it. The monkey, also known as a Japanese macaque, just went bananas. 
immediately attacking the next door neighbor as she talked outside of it outside with an HVAC repairman Friday afternoon. The monkey bit the woman and scratched her arms and legs, drawing blood. The monkey then ran across the street and banged on a neighbor's glass door. <laughs> as the repairman approached, the monkey turned and ran at the man. The repairman shot and killed it with one shot from his small Glock handgun. The man had a concealed carry permit, and thank goodness, because who knows, he may have saved this woman's life. From, from, the from monkey. a monkey. <laughs> yeah, it, it is worth noting that the, the monkey, uh, the owner of this monkey, uh, apparently is licensed to own and, and keep exotic pets. So uh, they were, you know, this animal was being properly, you know, kept, I suppose, except for the fact that it then escaped <laughs> somehow. So that's, that's problematic. Right, right. Uh, Anita comments, you can't make this stuff up. No, you, you cannot. <laughs> no. I mean, I guess a lot of firsts today. Uh, arcade story that, you know, just seemed kind of a little outside the norm for, for me. Uh, the uh, story we just shared a minute ago about the yard sale and now a use of deadly force against a violent monkey. <laughs> yep. That's right. Watch out for those monkeys. Especially those Japanese ones. <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> Wow, what a doozy. What a bunch of uh, great stories here today on this episode. Uh, by the way, if you'd like to review and see for yourself, uh, read these news stories and everything else we've talked about today, you can find those, the links very handily in the show notes of today's episode, which you can go to concealedcarry.com forward slash episode 261. Once this is officially published, uh, that should be uh, available and live. So that's where you'll find the show notes for today. Today's episode, once again, brought to you by... Guardian Nation and our new member benefit, a partnership together with AmmoSupplyWarehouse.com, where Guardian Nation members will get 5% off of already really excellent priced ammunition. AmmoSupply.com or AmmoSupplyWarehouse.com and log into the members area of Guardian Nation to get the discount codes. Uh, that will be something I think that'll change uh, regularly. And uh, so you'll want to log in regularly to make sure you have the latest and greatest code that'll be valid on AmmoSupplyWarehouse.com. Also, uh, the new t-shirts that we're sporting today speak softly and carry a big stick. You can buy those at ConcealedCarry.com forward slash big stick. And also, you know, lots of the crazy stories today, and including ones of people getting injured and in some kind, some cases killed. You know, one thing I was thinking about, Jacob, also about that story where the, the, the homeowner couple were killed outside their home uh, in that apparent robbery, invasion, whatever, was what if one of those deaths or more were due to bleeding out and had they had a tourniquet with them or something, maybe they'd still be alive to tell the tale. So... Are, are you carrying medical gear? Are you, do you have a kit? Do you have at least a tourniquet nearby or on your person, especially when you're at the range and just any old time because you never know when that's, when that's going to be needed. And I'll, I'll, I'm willing to bet that a tourniquet is needed more often than you will need to draw and use your gun in self-defense. Check out the North American Rescue IPOC or individual. It's, it's obviously geared towards police officers, uh, but it definitely could still be used by any one of you. And that is the individual police officer uh, kit uh, or IPOC, uh, concealedcarry.com forward slash IPOK to check those out. Uh, really, really awesome kit for what it is. And this comes from a very great American business uh, known for its quality and its products, uh, North American Rescue. So there you go. Those are the products. Uh, we appreciate your support of uh, our episode sponsors as well as of this podcast. And uh, yeah, I got nothing else. Jacob. 
No, just a thank you to uh, everyone who's participated with us, everyone who's listening. And uh, if you if you're interested in taking our Guardian Pistol classes, you know, mm. we're going to have some classes coming up here soon in North Carolina and in Houston, Texas, because we have some newly uh, certified instructors in those markets that will be teaching them. So keep True. an eye out for that. True that. Well, we've got our own course, uh, uh, the Triple Guardian, as I like to call it, uh, Guardian Pistol courses, three days. We've got coming up in October on, on a couple different weekends. We've got October 13th or 14th, was it? 13th. Yeah, Saturday the 13th. October we'll 13th, the Guardian yeah. Essentials Pistol. And then two weeks later, on a Friday and Saturday, we have the Guardian Standards and Guardian Breakthrough. That's the levels two and three of that same curriculum. Uh, that's right here in the Denver, Colorado area. So if you're in the area or or you want to come in and take one of those courses, hey, we'd love to have you. Doyle's asking if there's any classes in Washington State. Not yet. Sorry, bud. We'll get there. Uh, we hope to expand and, and have many more offerings of these courses all across the country. Hopefully very soon. We'll see how it goes. We're going to be working hard in the next year to certify more instructors and, and bring those closer to you. So with that, we're going to let you go, guys. Uh, have a great week. We'll see you here in a couple of days uh, with more content from the Concealed Carry Podcast. And so here's a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everyone. that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.